Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about Doug. No, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Okay, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you, but where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. It's just torture and murder. No platinum characters. Very, very realistic. I think it's what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learn about Cuba. Toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I am your host, joined as ever with my co-host Andrew. Good afternoon, early evening sir, how are you doing today? I'm good, well, thank you for asking. Of course. Today we are tackling the theatrical debut of Ryan Johnson. If the name isn't familiar to you, he is the director of Looper, Knives Out, and The Last... One of the Star Wars latest trilogy movies, the middle one in between the two J.J. Abrams one. I think it's The Last last Jedi something. I don't know. I, How I, do you not know the title? We were talking about it. I, I think it's The Last Jedi. Um, <laughs> I think you're right. I, I, have, I, I lost interest in the Star Wars movies in the 80s. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. We've been talking about this Star Wars movie. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, so apparently it's the most uh, divisive. Of the Star Wars movies, which I guess is saying something. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not really sure. But we're talking about his theatrical... And divided. Use that word too. Divided. Divided yeah. the uh, the audience. Um, some people say he ruined Star Wars. He ruined Luke Skywalker. Uh, we're not here to talk about anything Star Wars related. We're talking about his theatrical uh, debut movie, Brick which he wrote, directed, and edited. The movie Brick was produced by Ram Bergman and Mark G. Mathis. The cinematography was done by Steve Yedlin, whom Johnson met while in film school. And the music, which I am a particular big fan of, was done by Nathan Johnson, who is Ryan Johnson's cousin. This movie was produced on a budget of $450,000, which was raised through family and th- through family and friends. We'll get a, a little bit more into that in the course of the episode. And eventually grossed at the box office a very respectable $3.9 million. The movie was uh, released January 21st, 2005 where it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. At the film festival, he won, Mr. Johnson won, the special jury prize for, I, I think this is this encapsulates the movie. The prize that he won was Originality of Vision. <laughs> the movie then was uh, bought by Focus Features and premiered on April 7th, 2006 in a limited theatrical run in... Mostly New York City and Los Angeles. The movie stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Brendan Fry, 
Nora Zahetner as Laura Dannon. Lucas Haas plays The Pin. Noah Fleiss plays Tugger. Matt O'Leary plays Brain. Noah Sagan plays Dode. And Shaft, the original Shaft, hashtag my only Shaft. Well, that's a bad hashtag. Uh, Richard, the original, hashtag original shaft, Richard Roundtree is the assistant vice principal. The movie is a neo-noir drama, thriller, mystery, but set in a high school setting. Brendan Fry, our protagonist, our quote-unquote gumshoe, is investigating the disappearance and then death of his estranged former girlfriend, Emily. The femme fatale part is uh, Laura, as portrayed by Nora Zahetner, who is uh, secretly playing everyone against each other, like any femme fatale usually does in these noir pictures. Uh, She's orchestrating the whole thing behind the scenes. The pin is short for Kingpin, the local drug dealer. Uh, Tugger is his muscle. Dode is the stoner drug addict burnout who sets some of the the things in motion and brain is the character who may or may not be a figment of brendan's imagination who helps brendan put the pieces together to what happened to his girlfriend and what the titular brick refers to the brick is a reference to a brick of heroin and it's a rather big brick isn't it i think that's the state it's supposed to yeah a brick of heroin, they call it a brick because it's kind of, I guess, the, shape it's, it's the shape of a brick, the size of a brick. Like okay, you would see. I don't know, for some reason it seems like in the movie it was bigger than than a brick. That might just be for thematic okay. um, purposes. More like a Webster dictionary. You're right. The first draft of this was written in 1997 after Johnson had um, graduated from the USC School of Cinematic Arts. He sent. He spent seven years pitching the script to various producers and production companies, none of who were confident enough in a first-time director to give any money to because the script was, quote-unquote, too weird. This movie was shot in 20 days, on film, 35mm, and not digitally, which would have been more cost effective but going back to the the prize that this movie won originality of vision this movie is very much Ryan Johnson knowing what he wants in a movie and how to to get that across even with a limited budget now knives out which came out a couple years ago has been critically acclaimed and was a hit with audiences as compared to the divisive Star Wars movie that he was involved with. Now, it's interesting, maybe I should have checked out the Star Wars movie in question to see how it compares to to some of the other movies that Ryan Johnson has done. I have only he's only done 5 movies and I have seen Three of them. I've seen Brick, obviously. Looper, which I've talked to Andrew about uh, having a very interesting concept, but 
suffering from... I, I was taken out of the movie by the look of Joseph Gordon-Levitt because he's uh, he's it's a mix of prosthetics and digital trickery to make him look like Bruce Willis, and uh, that really took me out of the movie. In between that, he made a movie called The Brothers Bloom, which I haven't seen, and uh, the Star Wars movie. And it seems to me that Ryan Johnson, when left to his own devices, is a very skilled, talented, and competent writer and director. And he doesn't need a whole lot of outside influences telling him what to do, which may be why the Star Wars movie has been so divisive amongst the fans. And of course made a lot of money at the box office because anything Star Wars related these days will make a lot of money at the the box office. But seeing Knives Out and seeing Brick, these are very personal movies and they're very well scripted and they're very well directed. And yeah, I, I would imagine, I can only imagine what working for the the mega powers of Disney must be like to have um, so many cooks in your kitchen when you're, to use an analogy, I, I would say that Ryan Johnson with the right script and the right movie and the right vision is can whip up a, a masterpiece like Gordon Ramsay could whip up a five-star dinner. <laughs> but... Good one. If you're uh, you're having your so many uh, other people's influences coming through, you end up with a divisive movie, which apparently happened with Star Wars. But we're not here to talk about Star Wars. We're here to talk about Brick. <laughs> That's the second time you've said that. Yeah. <laughs> and we're still talking about Star Wars. So let's talk about Brick. <laughs> uh, this was a movie that was recommended to me about 10 years ago. So, I, yeah, I've seen this movie uh, quite a few times. But, Andrew, your first impressions, because you only saw this movie once, and that was uh, about a week ago. Yeah, or, or less than a week ago, I think. Um, it's, it's, I didn't get it. I didn't get it until you told me what the, what the conceit of the concept was. Um, that it is a film noir, that is a, it's a neo-noir that is set in a high school with teenagers. Once you told me that, I was able to adjust, shift gears, and, and take it in with, with less effort. Um, but it, it's still, it's still, it feels more experimental to me than, um, than a finished product because of my own conventional hang-ups. Uh, when I see a, a, a film noir, I, I would like to see, in, the script is written in such a way that it, you could you could cast Veronica Lake, Barbara Stanwyck, Fred McMurray, or you know like Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, i.e. Chinatown, um, and and it would work. It would work, um, and it would totally work. Like you don't have to put. Uh, it's 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 like. It reminded me of Bugsy Malone, which is an Alan Parker film with children playing gangsters with Jodie Foster and Scott Bayo, and basically they're playing dress up and playing gangsters, you know, and it's a musical also, so they're having they're, it's kind of rollicking. But I kind of thought that with these teenagers um, 
doing doing this type of motif, you know? Sure. So, yes, there's a very heavy noir influence, and that comes from the author Dashiell Hammett, who wrote The Maltese Falcon, Red Harvest, Glass Key, and his his work was a huge influence on the Coen Brothers movie Miller's Crossing, which Ryan Johnson saw for the first time in film school, and he became, by his own admission, pretty much obsessed with the movie mm. and the noir genre. In the noir genre in general. That's that's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, I've never seen Miller's Crossing. Have you seen Miller's Crossing? I have. All I've seen is that uh, that scene that's in the poster of the man begging for his life. In the woods. In the woods. In the, yeah. The assassin is going to... That scene is, is incredibly powerful. So I... I don't see so much the influence of Miller's Crossing in Brick, but Ryan Johnson said that some of the visual cues that he took for Brick were from Sergio, Sergio Leone Spaghetti Westerns, Chinatown, and the anime Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> okay. And uh, so I don't really see the Sergio Leone like Once Com- Upon a Time in the West, I think, is one of his big, big westerns. Right, the man, uh, the man with no name. I okay. think uh, Clint Eastwood uh, spaghetti westerns. Yeah, the music cues. I, I I hear a lot of Chinatown. I hear a lot of noir in, in yeah. the music, and the music utilizes a lot of piano, trumpet, and violin, um, some acoustic guitar. The visual comparisons to anime I only really see it in there's one scene in a parking lot between Brendan and Tugger when Brendan is trying to get Tugger to take him to see the pin now there's um and Tugger keeps beating him up keeps beating him up it is kind of like an anime it yeah scene and then the way it's shot even with 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 pumped up Tugger Way off in the in the background, marching towards the camera in a long shot. Right. Sure, I can see that. And then the uh, the, the car speeding off and then turning around to come yep. back and then flying right by yep. Brendan. Yeah. So I could see the visual. I see the visual cues there. I don't really see the spaghetti western too much, but th- that might be just because I'm not all that familiar with spaghetti westerns, uh, admittedly. So, the noir influence is here, and and Ryan Johnson said that it was amazing how all the archetypes from that detective world slid perfectly over the high school types. So we have... Really? (laughs) Go on, go on, go on. That's what he says. We're going to get into it. Go ahead. So, we we have our gumshoe, we have Brendan, we have uh, his assistant... The Watson to his home's brain. We have a femme fatale. We actually have two femme fatales. And I didn't write down the other actress or character's name, but she's the, the theater student. Yeah, and they're both they're both 
well, at least dark-haired. One is black and one is white, but they both have dark hair. And for some reason, once again, I'm caught up in the convention of film noir. I'm, I'm, I'm finding this about myself with this movie. Um, I'm, the, I think of the femme fatale as being a blonde, like a Veronica Lake or something of that, of that ilk. But uh, that's not necessarily has to be the case. That doesn't necessarily have to be the case. No, I think he takes some noir conventions and plays with them. He's, well, yeah, he is. He is. He's totally going... It, like I said, the script is... I, you know, it's almost like when he was shop, I'm. I don't... It started I, out as a novella. It wasn't... He had was, ri- it set, was it always set in high school? Yes, it was. Always. Always set in high school. I mean, because to me, it seems like that's the way he got it produced for very little money. And that's the, you know, otherwise it would have been expensive to create that kind of look. Right. You know, and to cast those type of actors, mature actors. So it's, it's funny because I, I think of it as a script that would be shopped around as something f- for a very conventional film noir movie set in the 1940s with a saxophone playing, you know, that whole, that whole deal. So, the con- so his concept... This this idea was intact from the very beginning on paper, even in the novella yes. that he was shopping around, which is basically a treatment. They call it a treatment. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, this was his vision, his idea from the very beginning. But it's interesting, you know, taken that we, we said it in high school, we don't need the detective's office. We don't need the receptionist. You know, instead of that, we 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 play everything in people's houses, outside, or at high school. There's very little in Cal, and this is in California. This is in suburban California. Correct. This yes. is, this was filmed in at his high school. Yes, San Clemente High School. Right. Sure. Pretty much Southern California. And with the exception of the pins basement office and hallway this was entirely practical locations okay with the exception also of the phone booth which uh is a set is a set piece in itself and two very important distinct scenes at least two it is and i was when i first saw this or when i yeah when i saw this i thought to myself i don't know when this is taking place because there's that scene uh, between Brendan and Brain with the Rubik's Cube where they're tossing around Rubik's Cube back and forth. So I'm thinking, is this in the 80s? Because then I see the phone booth as well. And I'm, I'm having no indication of cell phone usage up to that point. Um, but it's not the 80s because the, the clothes and the hair aren't the 80s or neither are the cars. So I'm thinking, OK, this is in some sort of... Um, non-specific you know time basically era but it's actually current it's 2005 there still were working phone booths in 2005 even though the the this phone booth that you're talking about is a set um and it does it does lend itself to the to the idea of you know a 1940s cop ducking into a phone booth to make uh, an anonymous call so the anonymity of, of calling from a phone booth is also very kind of integral to what's going on because Brendan is 
Brendan is full of uh, what would be considered top secret information within the context of this of this plot, right? Um, and he's conveying it back and forth uh, a lot, and he's doing it by phone. And so there is an added implication of anonymity that he's doing it from payphones instead of from his own personal cell phone, right? Which and people do use in this movie, but very rarely. Yeah, very, very rarely. Yeah. yeah, but I think this also harkens back that this script was originally written in 1997. Yeah, right. But the, and so when when at the beginning when there's a mention of a car phone, and so I, once again I'm thinking to myself, okay, well this is pre cell phone then, you know. And even in the, I think there's a scene with the car phone where it's all staticky. Right. It yeah. is. It's very staticky. Yeah. Uh, Brendan himself doesn't have a cell phone. Right. Neither does Brain. Brain has to borrow his mother's. He says, "Borrow your mother's cell phone." Right. So, but I think it visually, and we were talking about this. It's much more interesting to see Brendan on in a at a payphone or in a phone booth than it would be to have him just standing on a sidewalk with. A cell phone. Well, absolutely, and this is why I have. This is one of the reasons why I have. I, I have such a. Uh, um, I'm so apathetic towards movies now. I'm. I'm pretty apathetic towards the idea of cell phone usage in general now. Um, I. You know, I'm old enough to remember a time when we didn't use cell phones all the time, and I. I'm nostalgic for that time, and so I like movies that deal with. Um, Landlines, <laughs> pay phones, rotary phones. I myself want to have a landline rotary phone. I think I can pull it off one day. Sure. So yeah. So I mean, it is. It is. It's. It's always preferable for me to see uh, actors not being on a cell phone, but being on different forms of you know communication. It's. It, it lends itself visually to a much more interesting. Yeah. Story. Sure. Um. So. This movie also, I think some of the the problems with the movie is they invented some of their own slang in this movie. Really? Yeah. um, They make certain references, but they they talk about it. Um, The slang, for the most part, is pretty easy to pick up. When they say someone's from the upper crust, you know, it's like the... The popular kids in high school, the sure, jocks. Sure. Uh, but that's an original slang that that was come up. Came I'm not sure if it's it, it was original to me to hear. Maybe that's something that's common in California. You know. So Ryan wrote the script. Did he write it with somebody else? Did I miss this? No, he wrote it. It's it's all him. Okay. So we have some some slang that's. Made up. Um, they do reference it because the Brendan. The whole movie is set off because Brendan receives a phone call from his estranged girlfriend, who who's she's worried. She's scared about something, and she makes references to a couple things that Brendan is completely unfamiliar with. She says something about the brick being bad. He doesn't know what the brick refers to. He says something about the pin. She says something about the pin being upset. He doesn't know who or what the pin refers to. And. <laughs> all right. I remember watching all this and being like, I have no idea what is going on in this movie. 
so on so many levels. So and it it was almost enough for me to not to remove my interest from the movie. So I had a similar reaction the first time I watched okay. this movie. I I a lot of it flew over my head. Yeah. I don't think to the I was... point where you're like, well, why? I'm not. This is too much to for me to, you know. Hur- this is too big of a hurdle for me to jump, to get involved. Right, and uh, so I kind of just left it aside, and then I came across an article uh, talking about it, and I said, oh, I remember watching that movie, and I read the article about it, and they were talking about certain things, and it started to to click more for me, and then I. I remember distinctly going out and buying the DVD, and I watched it twice in a row. The first time, because it was almost like a f- re-watching the movie for the first time. And then it's all kind of wrapped up in the final scene. The payoff is good. The payoff is very good. Yeah. And then I actually remembered that night going back. I had no intentions of re-watching the movie, but I did. After after I was like, okay... Let me go back and rewatch it, and then having the information and having the character on upon rewatch, I had a greater appreciation for it because this is a movie that you need to to pay attention to because if you don't, you're going to get lost very quickly. Uh, it's it's pretty easy to follow. But it won't hold your hand, and I think that maybe one. More, I I think maybe that this script needed one more rewrite, one more pass, um, because some of it is pretty ambiguous. Normally, I want more bones thrown at me um, that I can chew on for a movie. Uh, a good example, and I might be jumping ahead with this, is the um, the deleted sex scene between uh, Brendan and Laura. Sure. And so we watched that. We watched the deleted scenes before recording just now. And I found that sex scene very, very satisfying and very gratifying because it established it established a real connection between those two characters. Um, and I wanted, I, I did want more of that. There, for the most part, let me think before I, before I speak. For the most part... These characters are more interested in themselves than each other. Brendan is more interested in finding out what went down with Emily. That's his mission. Yes. The rest of these characters are pretty self-involved. So I start longing for a real connection between characters. And I think that's one of the reasons I had a hard time navigating myself through this. Sure. And we... We see Brendan interacting with these characters, and most of them are pretty new to him. So they're new to us as a viewer. Right. The only person that he really had had known previously before the investigation started was Dode, the burnout. Right, and Brian... And Brian. And Brain. And Brain, sorry. I keep wanting to call him Brian. But Brain is kind of... Is his all kind of as you said, like kind of the Fight Club alter ego character that just lingers, but is actually giving he he bounces his ideas off Brain. I mean, the, he's called Brain, yes. so he's bouncing his ideas off him, and Brain helps him understand or helps him put together the pieces. The pieces, right. yeah. 
and they're like with the Rubik's cube. Right. He's like his little Rubik's cube. And you had you had brought up the Rubik's cube, and then I told you that my uh, that they've 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 evolved. They, they have. have like they've... multifaceted Rubik's cubes. Now. It's not even a cube anymore. I think I told you it was like a, it's like an octagon. Uh, it's it's highly evolved, and I I would, probably wouldn't have known that if it weren't for my godson. He brought one of them uh, to my apartment one day, and I was like, "That's a Rubik's cube now." I was like, I had enough problem when it was just a cube, and now that like. It's, you know, it, you know, back in those days, I remember my friend, uh, my friend Byron. He took he took the stickers off and just put them right, like rearranged I, them. I he said, a, "There, I did it." I know a lot of people that did <laughs> yeah. that. So uh, it, it helps. I I think that this this movie. I I, I think it. I don't think it pl- plays too. I don't think it would play too well for older viewers wanting. A noir movie. This is my deal. This is, and you know what? Here's the we were you were talking about jelly beans with popcorn flavor and how <laughs> yes. much of a head trip that is. Yeah. Do you remember when they had clear Pepsi for I, about five I minutes? Do. Crystal Pepsi. Is that what it was called? Yeah. It's called Crystal Pepsi, it like is. Crystal Meth. Um, so I remember buying clear Pepsi and drinking it, and it was a major head trip because I was drinking something that looked like Sprite, but it tasted like a cola, and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't make. I couldn't bridge that gap. I couldn't make that transition. Right. That's kind of how I feel with this movie. I'm very. I, I feel like I'm approaching it as an old timer, um, watching something where I want to see it once again. And I won't keep beating this. You know, beating this point in, but something where I want to see like black and white and shadows and uh, you know and and old time movie stars being uh, you know very very diffident and sultry and and mysterious you know and instead i'm seeing like i'm seeing i'm seeing high school students i'm seeing high school students in a high school and i you also brought up that did 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 ryan johnson say this was more instead of being a real high school it was more like what it felt like to be in high school correct yes i was just about to bring that up and I can understand that because my imagination ran wild in high school every day when I was in school. I would, you know, as an actor, I was playing different roles in my head every right. day. I'm going to be this person today. A lot of that was just surviving the mundane routine of going to high school every damn sure. day. But uh, I can understand that. But still, I mean, I still feel like they're playing, they're playing pretend. Um, I guess this could, do you think this whole scenario could feasibly go down with a bunch of high school students? Not at all. Never. Okay, so so it's hyper realistic. Okay, so that needs to be ne- understood or on some level the viewer needs to accept that. Right. And I think that's part of the reason why it doesn't connect with certain people because it's not that clearly established. And it, that, you know what it doesn't have to be? No. I like that there's a lot of this a mo- lot of things about this movie that is not spelled out for you. Or spoon fed to you that it's you just like it is what it is, and you it you know you either watch it or you don't. It, it, so I you know yeah, and they the, don't care, and they don't care because it's got its own thing going on. It definitely right. does. Yes. So it does. It it can boast that the plot, right. the plot in and of itself, the writing of the script in and of itself is solid enough and good enough 
the payoff is good enough and it's thought out yes, well enough. Very well. Where they, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They don't have to succumb. They don't have to pander no. to the genre, you know, that I personally want to see fleshed out in front of me visually. So I think that's part of the, re- I think some of it, some people go into the, ex- and then they think maybe it's going to be a parody of noir. Right. Like, like Bugsy Malone of a gangster right. movie. And there are certain scenes where it kind of feels that way. Like what? I would say the whole... There's an interaction between when Brendan is first brought into the pin. He's beaten up. And then when they find out that, you know, all right, he's not just going to walk away from this. So let's talk to him. The scene is set at... A, t- a kitchen table where the pin's sitting across from Brendan. Brendan's got a bowl of cornflakes. The pin has a napkin with a lip of big cookie on it. And the the pin's mother. Now, the pin is... So, we're dealing with high school students. It's The pin, I would say, is in his early 20s. He's already graduated. He's, you know, and he his, he's in the drug game now. But his mom is asking Brendan, and it's a very humorous scene, and I've seen, we actually watched a review where, where one of the guys said that it was a humorless movie or something. There are some comedic parts in this movie, and I don't, some of them I don't think are supposed to be comedic, but that scene certainly is is played yeah, to be comedic. Absolutely, and I think she's the only, is she the only parent we see? We see, well, the only, we see very few adults in this movie. We do. And, uh, and actually, it's, I'm not sure if this was purposeful or not, but the other scene that I was going to bring up was between Brendan and the vice principal. I told you their conversation reminded me of the interaction you see very often in a cop movie. Yeah. Between the the hotshot cop who doesn't right. want to play by the rules. Right. And the chief that's always reprimanding him. Right. So, you know, in my mind, I'm, go- I'm, re- I'm re-shooting the scene in a precinct. <laughs> with adults, with yes, both, both of them being adults, right? Because because he makes he has lines like, "Well, if you don't like it, you could write me up." But then, since it's high yeah, school, it becomes a disciplinary, disciplinary. You know, so there's the high school says, version of disciplinarianism, and then there's the like cop and 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 sergeant or whatever, like you know, disciplinary action right. in a precinct. He's got some very, fun, <laughs> and they're funny because I mean, of the yeah. setting. He's like, I don't want you kicking in my homeroom door and ruining it. <laughs> like, how could you not see the humor in that line? He's like, if you don't like what I'm doing, you could. Write me up and I'll see you at the parent-teacher conference. Yes. Like, how can you not see the humor in those scenes? That is, I mean, now that you tell me, it's funny. I don't think I laughed during the scene, but I was still trying to, like, make heads or tails right. of it all. So I that think is funny. It that's is. A, that's very funny. And then the, and whole, the whole cereal and milk with the mom is funny, too. She's like, she sure. wants tang? She's like, oh, no, wait, that's more like soda. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> he's like, and I think this is funny because this is something that, like, he's he says ma'am. He goes, ma'am, what milk? Water would be just fine. <laughs> Something like that. So, like, it's not, but it's not a parody of, it's not a parody of noir movies. I, and you it's have. It's not. It's not. You it takes have, itself very seriously. It's a, and it should, because a lot of, once again, a lot of thought has been put into this plot and the intricacies of it. But was this, it was, but it was never envisioned to be. For adults. 
cast with adults. No, and it was never supposed to be a realistic de- depiction of high school. So okay. you need to sus- like. So you, the problem I think that some of the people have with this movie is you kind of need a little prerequisite to this movie. If you if you gave someone a a two minute talk about how it's not supposed to be a parody, it's it's, it's supposed to be hyper realistic. But, but then I again, I don't think you should have to do yeah, that. I don't subscribe to that. Okay. You know, like I've told you the story about my my mom going to see 2001 A Space Odyssey when it came out in the theaters, and they handed out pieces of sheets of paper what? explaining it before the movie even started. She was like, What's it? what? Let, just let me watch the movie. Do I have to do this research before I sit down and watch a movie that I just paid for? So, so I, you know, I believe in a lot of what, the movies that we do, I'll go in cold. Right. You know, the ones that you've chosen. Um, and I prefer to do that, like with this one. I wanted to go in cold. Um, so, I mean, I don't think it would help have helped me if I knew all of this before I saw the movie. It did help me when you told me it about a third into the movie. Uh, but still, I I do subscribe to the belief that the viewer should be challenged with by a movie. Yes, you know. So I, yes. you know, I don't I don't think that things should be spoon fed. No, uh, but I could see how some people would feel a disconnect from it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get it. I'm wondering if you hadn't told me that, and I watched the whole movie, would I have gotten it? But I and like I told you, I had a similar reaction the first time I watched. Yeah. It. So. Yeah, it, it's just... I think I would have gotten it, though, because at the end with the big reveal, then it's like, ah... Uh, yeah, you get that... This is very much like, you know, like a detective film where it's, like, all revealed at the end, and, like, it... You know, then it be- it does become about the actual story. And I, I probably... I don't usually like endings like that, where it's like, okay, I needed to be told well, all H- of this. Yeah, Hitchcock always hated that. In he, fact, he always hated that last scene in Psycho... Where everything's explained, right? He didn't want to have that in the movie. No, at the end. yeah. But the way that this is handled in this particular movie, it's done very well. And then there's one last twist that we that Brendan may or may not have known throughout the movie. Part of the um, the tension between. The pin, Tug, Dode, and Brendan is that it's revealed about halfway through that Emily was murdered. Tugger had killed her. She was pregnant. She was seeing Tugger and she was also seeing Dode. And there's this huge... And she was seeing Brendan at some point too. She had, so, and, but and she as, had. Already, as Laura says that she 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 was, she was having quite a few little trysts with other guys. Now, in with, Emily's defense, she did not start seeing Tugger and Dode until after breaking up with Brendan. Okay. So, but we're we're shown in flashbacks that he is clearly in love with Emily, still in love with her. Like obsessive infatuated. But a little, and I think this kind of helps with the high school setting. It's almost like that first high school love. Yeah. You're a little, you're a little too head over heels. Yeah. I mean, you're a little, he's got blinders on. Right. Yeah. You're, and possessive, Mm -hmm. I would say. It's not really shown, but like I could. 
Well, a lot of it comes out in the, one of the conversations that they have together when he's trying to bring her over to his side again. And what does she say to him? She says something, something to the effect of, I can't even remember, but what she says is insightful about his character um, and that it's not going to work out because of a character flaw in his personality. Right. Yeah. And then she's, yeah, she makes a lose. You have to stop being mad at everyone else because I don't want to be with you anymore. Yeah. Something to that extent. Yeah, yeah. So, and that if they were together, it wouldn't work because, I wish I could remember, but so, but like, she, I think it's something to the effect of she's not what he sees her to be, or she at least wants to assert a different person. And I can only speak know? from, I, I think that this also speaks to, to high school romances. We kind of, We, we have a, a, maybe a false vision or a yes. a heightened vision of what this of yes. what this person is or what they are to us yes and 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 then we see the couples that that break up because they're going off to college or they break up for, for whatever reason but I think that Through, throughout throughout my life, like not just in high school, but throughout my life, I've had I've I've dealt with this right. on both ends. Actually, I think everybody Be, has. Okay, well, that's good to hear. I don't feel so alone. No, but like being infatuated with somebody and having a very specific vision of that person, and that vision is not necessarily who that person really is. No, and then I've had that happen to me over and over again too. I've actually. It's funny, once I started to deal with, okay, once I started to deal with the issue as it pertained to other people viewing me, I stopped doing it to other people, if that right. makes any sense at all. Yes. Yeah, so. We kind so of have this is, yeah. our rose-colored glasses about what this person is. We don't see their imperfections as, or, as they or, see them. Or what they really want. And what they really, who they really are, and what they really want out of life—it seems right. to get eclipsed with that. So I think this is going on between uh, Brendan and Emily. I think right. This is, I think there's a facet of this going on. Right. At and least I, she says so to him. And I, I, I think that he's a very ide, ide, uh, ideological person. Who Brendan? Brendan, who kind of. Like you said, he has blinders on. I don't think, and and I think this is why the high school setting works, because as an adult, you will see that there's plenty of fish in the sea, but to him, Emily is the only fish in the sea. Yeah. But we see high school, we think that's the ocean, and it's not. In relation, I mean, it's, it's our, a puddle. It, it's We go five days a week, it's our world, you know. And it's like it's there really isn't much else. So I think that it's a very telling comment that this is not supposed to be what high school a realistic depiction of what high school was or is, but how it feels when you're there, because you're you're very much in a fishbowl. Mm -hmm. You're in sure. your own little fishbowl. Yeah. So you can only interact with the fish in that fishbowl. Yeah. You go off to college and you're. You're kind of like a fish released from the bowl into a lake. Yes. And then when you travel in your life after college and you start 
traveling and moving for jobs, you could see that there's beyond this lake. And then you're in the ocean. Then you're in the ocean. With the sharks. <laughs> so Once we're not, again. so Brick isn't dealing with the ocean. It's dealing with this small fishbowl. Yep. Yep. Good point. Good point. Now, yeah, because in a film, let's, let's just say this, like in a film noir movie, like in a conventional film noir movie, Double Indemnity, let me just name a couple. Um, Chinatown, I mentioned before. Uh, Sudden Fear, that's another one too. Uh, maybe the Maltese Fal Falcon. But anyway, there is kind of a fishbowl thing going on with those movies even because you see these characters. You see the main character who might be a detective uh, operating with the same set of characters throughout the movie. And so there's something um, um, enclosed about that right you know even if it's an urban setting and you're in new york city with all those people you're still this person's still dealing with the same people every day just like kind of in a high school i mean once you get a job it's kind of the same thing even if you're yes. working at a detective's office or you're working at a precinct it's the same group of people and then if you've got and then if you're if you're questioning people um about a case that's also going to be very a, a tight-knit group right yeah so and so I, I, I think that this whole high school aesthetic works. And admittedly, some of it is unbelievable and not relatable and exaggerated and weird, but that's intentional. To the. He took influence from David Lynch and he took influence from Twin Peaks. And I think we see kind of some of the weirdness of the characters, especially the pin, I would say, is the most out there character. Now tell us who that who who that was based on again, because now, it's pretty it's pretty cool. So his whole look, the jacket, the cane, the hair, was all a direct homage to Barnabas Collins. From the horror soap opera, Dark Shadows. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, pin, I didn't pin that. <laughs> but I uh, now that you tell me, it's so apparent. It's very and you and I. I was thinking first of all, I didn't know it was Lucas Haas, but I knew I I knew the actor was familiar, and his whole getup, the way he, I mean, he's he's carrying like a staff, right? He's got this like it's a cane. It's a cane, right? Does he have a limp? Yes. It's not clear which is it, it, He's got a club foot. And if you He's got a do, do they say that? No, but you if you look and you watch the scenes with him, you could see that he's got one of those shoes that kind of has the the only one shoe has the bigger Soul, so it kind of evens you out when you walk. That's why they kept showing under the table, the sh the feet under the table. Right. I didn't get that. So, okay, see, here we go. Yeah, there's a this is an interesting qu quote because I, I I watched the commentary for this movie and he talks about and on rewatch of this movie, there's a lot of close up of shoes. We see a lot of people walking. Yeah. Now, this was because I have an interesting quote here from Ryan Johnson's. You get an instant snapshot of essence, quote unquote, about a person based on their footwear. <laughs> Isn't there, there's a line, there's a line from Sunset Boulevard where Joe Gillis is like, 
uh, he didn't know he he didn't he didn't have to ask me how I was doing. He just had to take a look at my shoes. <laughs> so that yeah, that's a whole. And he was talking about the first time, the first time that he met um, Joseph Gordon Levitt. He uh, Levitt had read the script and was very impressed and wanted to do it. And out of the blue, he asked. And this is just telling. I think they they had some weird, and they've worked together. Uh, they worked together in Looper, but they had like this kismet connection because one of the questions that Joseph Gordon-Levitt asked Ryan Johnson was, "What kind of shoes does Brendan wear?" <laughs> Sometimes that's all you need to know. So <laughs> it's just interesting to me that it just like the weird visual cues and like the way that everything just kind of it's. It's so well crafted that it's one of those movies, which is why I felt comfortable. Like I, I very rarely would immediately watch a movie after just watching the movie, but I had done so because all the pieces clicked, and once all the pieces and and the puzzle was kind of in front of me, and I saw the big picture, I kind of wanted to go back to 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 look at the pieces before they became the puzzle. Okay. See, I don't like, I don't think I like to think that much. Okay. I think that's my, that's another one of my problems with, with movies. So when it comes, I mean, if I watch, uh, if I watch, let's say an Agatha Christie movie, like I'm Christie movie, I'm not trying to figure it out like my friends all are when they're watching it with me. Sure. Like I just watch it and I just want to see how, how they deal with the big reveal at the end, right. you know? And I'm I'm pretty lazy. I'm pretty lazy about it. And oftentimes um, I just don't pay too much attention to the clues or or trying to guess who who did it you know uh, so with with a movie like this like it, it, it was no exception I was just as lazy as I am with any other movie <laughs> I didn't really try to put it all together I just wanted to see how it ended up uh, but with that being said okay so with that being said how much of you how much of it were you able to figure out and put together upon let's see Let's say the second viewing, because the second viewing, the second and third viewings were the ones you watched back to back, right? Correct. So before you watched it for a third time, on the second time you watched it, were you able to kind of figure any of it out? I'm just curious. Yes. You were? I was. Uh... So by the end of the, that, that football scene, that football field scene, you had put together some of that? I had. Wow. Were you right with what you had put together? I would say about... 75% correct. Wow. Did you know that it was his baby that she was carrying? That was not part of that 75%. I, I did, <laughs> no, not, I did not see that coming. Okay. Did you know that she, that Laura had pretty much masterminded all of the, you know, cataclysmic, disastrous, uh, you know, fallouts around her? Yes, because upon the second viewing, I didn't, this is something I missed upon the first viewing. So when he gets that first phone call from the from Emily and she's very distressed we hear a car in the background and at first viewing i thought that she was calling him from the car right when it drove by right and, and that, she's very distraught she's about she's right about to die yes, am i right yes she she's very very upset She's very scared. We hear it in her voice. There are visual cues there that I did not pick up that first time. 
Well, we the cigarette. See it, the cigarette is flicked out the window. With the arrow on it. With a little blue arrow on it, so we know exactly what... Later on, we figure out it's that's Laura's cigarette. Yes. Laura's we'll, brand of cigarette. Right. And he had initially attributed the cigarette to Tug. And there's actually a line of dialogue, which... I'm not sure if it's the first or second time, but it threw me through a loop because he's talking to the the drama girl, the drama actress girl. She's a hoot. She is. And, and once again, like I wanted him to go to an actual, th- you know, I'm an actor. I wanted him to go to an actual theater and have her. But anyway, let me let me get <laughs> off this trip. So, but yeah, it's fun to watch her uh, do her stuff. Like she, she she's she's another. She, she was fun. She and that's another scene where I say, how can you not see the humor in this scene? Because she has, and I'll get back to the cigarette. I will. I promise. Yeah. She has scenes. Two of her scenes. <laughs> there's a character off screen doing something sexual to her below the waist. I don't know if it's foot worship or, you know. You don't know. No, you don't know. But, and how could these scenes not be played for laughs? Because he says, get up, lap dog. And like, <laughs> both of these scenes, you see the, somebody crawl up off the floor. And uh, yeah, we don't know what they're doing, but. Well, it's like, I want to laugh, but for some reason, I'm I'm like kind of appalled or shocked or I mean I can for me to be appalled or shocked at something like that is 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 not in my character but I mean I kind of was I was just like what the she's f- got she's got like a guy like down there like what well, she's conducting her usual business yeah out in, out in the open yeah the first scene I they're, mean, they're, maybe, maybe she's just shining her shoes or something well he says that uh she likes to f- quote flush her Floss her teeth with freshmen. But that metaphor could be taken, you know, it, it could even be taken in a non-sexual way. Absolutely, you know? yeah. yeah. Just, you know. Yeah. Uh, Make mincemeat of them in one way or another. You manipulate know? them, yeah, you know. I mean, they're definitely, they're, they're, they're definitely in worship mode of her. And that's pretty much the bottom line. Or it could be, you know, her hazing ritual of of freshman students coming into the theater department. Right, right. Like Parker Posey in uh, Dazed and Confused. Right. Something like that. You got a a (laughs) fresh-faced freshman coming in. You're the senior. You're, you know, to them, you're the the higher up. You'll do whatever they say. Yeah, yeah. Down on your hands and knees. You don't go higher than my knees, okay? Right, right, right. (laughs) In The King and I, like, you, if the king is... Is is down on his knees. You have to get down on your knees too. You, you can't be higher than the king, right? Exactly. Yeah, physically, so, I think there's like a dog thing with that too. Like you're supposed yeah, to do that with dogs. Something, yeah. Be over them. To so um, they, it affirms that you're their master. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a very um, dominant. Do, yeah, yeah, dominant, submissive kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. That there's, there's all sorts of uh, underlining. Uh, psychology that we could we could delve into but back to the cigarette okay he 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 says well i know what brand is dodes or tugs so he attributes the cigarette to either dode or tug he and he makes it clear to laura that he doesn't trust her yep throughout the movie yep even though she's, you which know, is pretty much the justification for deleting that sex scene, I think. 
yeah. between the two of them, even though it's still implied that they've slept together. Yeah, it, it's it's made explicitly clear in the deleted scene that they did sleep together. Yeah. But we don't know until the the end. And, and this movie, very similar to Knives Out, has twists and turns that you don't see coming. Some of them I did see coming, and some of them I, I didn't. But there's a very intense scene at a, a, a tunnel where Brendan previously had found Emily's dead body. And when he finds her, he hides the body. And unbeknownst to him, Dode, one of her lovers, saw him hide the body. Right, and don't we hear him running away? And uh, Brendan tries to chase after him only to get knocked down. Correct. That, that, so that's Dode. That's Dode. Yep. And then he calls him later and says, you're, you know, uh, if I squawk, it's over for you. Right. Yeah. And, I, and then basically saying, and then Brendan's like, what do you want from me? And Dode's saying, I just want to see you sweat. Right. Yeah. He, he, Dode was in love with Emily. Okay. And he believed that the baby was his. Right. Now, and isn't that what? Okay, go on. Tug, who is also seeing Emily, believes that the baby is his. Right. Now, Laura's behind all of this still, isn't Correct. she? Yes. So she gets it into Tug's head that that the baby is his, and then what? And then she tells Emily to tell Tug that the baby's not his, and that's what sets him off. Now, does Laura know? Now, and then they say on the football field at the end, Brendan says that you, Laura knew that Tug would hit Emily with that if that information was conveyed. Right. So, hit does not mean a conventional slap in the face. It means a shoot, right? It means like uh, shooting, shooting her with a gun. Right. Am I right? Yes, because. There's also, and and just, I mean, out of context, that might seem like a bit extreme, but we also have, this is, this movie has layers and there's, there's a, there's different plots going on. We also have to remember that we're dealing with a missing brick of heroin. Oh, right. So Laura, who's playing all these parts, has tricked the pin and tug to thinking. Now, the pin has, I think... It's 10 bricks of heroin, and they talk about it, and eight of the bricks were sold. One of the bricks went missing. And that's what Laura took, blaming it on Emily. Laura broke it down, or, or mixed it with some really bad shit that put someone into a coma. So it's... See, so many things. Yeah, there's, just, there's I mean, so much going... It's this too is, much. And that... <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I think, and I think this is this is why I had to rewatch the movie after I saw it the first time. I had to go back, yeah, and be like, okay, you, you need cliff notes. It's almost like you put the the pieces of the puzzle together, but it's almost like you do the border pieces because it's the easiest to find. Yes, but then so you you almost do it mindlessly, but then when you go back to look at the border pieces, you find out that there's more there than you had initially yeah thought. And that's what this movie is. And okay. I could see why... I can almost see how this would work better as a novel, almost. 
I guess. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, you'd. Fi- I would be flipping pages back and forth. Now, wait a minute. What about this person? And right. What happened to that? And oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Let me go on to the next chapter. Yeah. But again, I would need to reference. I'd need to backtrack. You do. You do. You do need to with this movie because you know, just have you know, just being pregnant. I I don't think Tug would have done what he did, but he's under the impression. Tug is a loose... I mean, they go out of their way to make sure... He's a hothead. We see that he is a very much of a loose cannon. Very impulsive. Very, I mean, all you have to do... All you have to do is, like, flick a hair off his shoulder and he'll beat you up. Right. Yeah. And... He... So not only does he think that she's pregnant, but he also thinks that she stole the brick. Now, I, I, I don't know how much money a brick of heroin costs or how much it would sell for it's implied that it's a lot a lot of money a lot very very i mean it turns when that final brick goes missing at the end it turns into a blood a bloodbath so yeah we get even if you're not familiar with drug culture it's there's enough hints there that we're not talking about a dime bag of marijuana. No. And people that don't know, a dime bag is 10 bucks worth of marijuana. We're yeah, talking about well, a brick of heroin. Now, it's also implied, and this is important because it plays a part in the, the story, that this is a brick of pure heroin, which is then, I guess, broken down, and then it's cut. So you have, and we also, we, we watched something about addiction previous to this. Right. And they talk about, he makes reference to to cutting drugs with and i guess this is very common with cocaine and heroin that it's very little yeah heroin very little cocaine and yeah. this you you cut it with i don't know whatever yeah. you cut it with but yeah this particular brick was cut with laundry detergent jesus christ which puts that kid there's a kid that's put into a coma because he so I mean, you know, I take I take borax and borax you can actually ingest and it's got boron in it and it's good for you. It's actually good for you. Why couldn't they have used borax instead of fucking you know like Tide or whatever? Right. So Jeez. it's a, so what, who, who does that? Why did someone Laura, did, Laura did this? Right. Yeah. Why would she do that? And yeah, Brendan asks her, and he basically says he doesn't he doesn't care why she did it, but he knows that she did it. I mean, that's he, murder. He, yeah. He said he wasn't sure that if she did it to piss off the pen or to make money. It's never that established. That puts her in psycho category, for real. Instead of just being like this femme fatale, ma- manipulative bitch, like now she's like a psycho murderer. She's and, like lacing like lacing her dr- the drugs with detergent. But okay. it's, uh, yeah, but by the end of the movie... We see that she, you know, she she's basically a sociopath. She is, but I mean, still, why would like she? The, there's a difference between manipulating everyone, literally to death, um, for your own financial benefit, just to like rake in the drug money, and you know, mixing detergent with heroin so somebody dies or goes into a coma let's goes into a coma right you know i mean that's i just that's that's kind of a big thing right yeah and it's interesting because we kind of we we talked a little bit about this actress's acting in the movie she's very 
cold. Right. I mean, I like I like it, but when she's required to act, and she's not even when she's emoting, she's she's it's it's I like it in a minimalistic kind of way, but it. I did question her acting abilities throughout the movie. But then if you go back with the the knowledge that she's a sociopath, she's manipulating everyone, this cold demeanor... It works. It does, for yep. the character. Yep. You know, I haven't... I can't think of something else that I've seen this particular actress in, so I, I'm not sure, but it seems to me that this was exactly the way that she was directed to act. I think so, too. Absolutely. Uh, because she actually appears on the comment, the commentary track briefly. She comes in to talk with uh, Ryan Johnson about the movie, and you could tell that you know, she's got a very good personality, of a good sense of humor. Okay, they're they're riffing back and forth, kind of telling jokes and stories about the movie and that. So did she lend any insight into her character and her what you know what her I don't know her motivation. You know, no, basically that she she did it the way that she was directed to do. And that's also, <laughs> okay. but that's also everyone was directed to act the way that they did because they had three months of rehearsal time before this movie. So this that's movie, unprecedented. That's almost too much time. You can rehearse something. Oh, you can over-rehearse stuff. Oh, I, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, especially for the budget that this movie had. That yeah. They had that rehearsal time. So it's clear that all these kind of whatever hang-ups the actors might have had about their motivation or whatnot, they were able to talk to Ryan about him. And, and they were discussions, able to right, work it out. Okay. What their motivations were, um, subtext, yeah, all that kind of stuff, like the, the personality, how they would, yeah, how they yeah. would react to certain scenes. Yeah, it's clear that th th this was, um, it's a tightly scripted movie, it's yeah. very, very tight, yeah, maybe a little too tight, yeah. Um, I might agree with you with that, and and I say that because while the the uh, YouTube critic that we said said that this is a humorless movie. I, I disagree. But once you see Knives Out, which is a razor sharp who not who done it, just a mystery. There's so much humor. It's a it's it's a very light movie. It's a very easy movie to watch, and I don't mean light as in bright the the atmosphere the whole tone the feel of the movie is very light okay there, there's well, a lot of humor there okay i mean have have we talked about oh am i gonna get this title right um murder by death i think that's the name of the movie it's from the 70s it's a it's a whodunit movie with an all-star cast, it's kind of like Clue. It's pretty much a comedy. Oh, okay. So Clue, Clue, Clue. Both of them have a very kind of snappy. Uh, I want to say lighthearted, you know, approach. Even though there's murder and death. Yeah, going on. there's one-liners. There's yeah. zingers. Yeah. There, the characters are very eccentric. Yep. Um, you don't get that with Brick. No. No. These. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, right for high school. Yeah. yeah. It's. I mean, they're it, very somber. They somber. are somber, and I get that some people go through the, those periods, and but I also think that the way that it's written, Emily talks about 
Brendan being so ang he's he's very angsty. Oh yeah. He's at yeah. And he, his only friend is Brain, who may or may not exist in his head. That's right. That's right. Um, now, and 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 of course, we need to add here that we don't see any football games. We don't see any cheerleaders. We don't see any classes. No. Nope. We the closest thing we see is a theater performance, but even that we see from backstage for right. a minute, for a second. Yep. For like a millisecond. Uh, that's the only thing that we actually see in terms of high school stuff, high school activities, right. high school things going on. Fast Times at Regimont High or Dazed and Confused, this is not. No. Is there a cafeteria scene? In Brick? Yeah. No. Okay. There's no... There's The uh, library, in the library scene where he meets Brain, it's off in the corner of some aisle. Right. In the in the library, and it looks like it's like in the middle of the night. I think it's early, early in the morning. No, yeah, something. they talk about him taking the early bus, so okay. it's, I think it's something uh, it uh, takes place very, very early in the day. But, again, it, this movie makes it work. This it does. Movie, this movie could have been a... a it could have very easily fallen into parody of high school, parody of noir movies, but I, I think I and and I I told you that the the quote about how it's supposed to feel like we feel in high school, where everything seems super serious, your 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 love is just like hormones firing and everything seems uber serious and then in hindsight as an adult you look back and you said wow why was i so intense those four years or why was i so why was i so angry it seems like the most important time in your life yeah and you got to remember that it's just a drop in the pond. Like in hindsight, it's just a drop in the pond. Yeah, but you you know you've gone through so many years of of being in the educational system by that right. point. It's, you know, it's yeah. pretty much like your whole existence. And as we said, like this wouldn't go down in a real high school with no. real high school students. So I mean, the 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 gravity of all of this and um, is is palpable throughout the whole movie, and it just keeps building and building until the climax. The so end. I think, also, I, I'm not sure if this was intentional or not, but the way that I was able to, on the second or third viewing, disconnect the fact that this is not supposed to be really what high school is, is the fact that the drug of choice, apparently, for everyone that uses drugs at this school is heroin. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I don't know about you. I, you, in high school, the drug of choice was pot. Yeah, you know, the drug of choice was well, if you can get beers on the weekend for someone. That's the drug of choice. Okay, but I mean, if we're, I mean, let's let's also cons, you know, I'm I'm getting I'm getting nitpicky here, but like, let's consider it that it's Southern California, uh, in a high school in Southern California, there might be there might be meth going on. Sure, you know. But still heroin? There might be some heroin going on, but it's not going to be uh, something that's, that everybody's dabbling in. No. And yeah. so, yeah. yeah, that helped me. Like, upon second view, I was like, okay, I can, I can disconnect because we have 
this the head jock football player. Now, if this guy's a heroin addict, he I'm sorry. Throw, <laughs> Who? Which one's the head jock football player? The black guy. The, the black kid that beats up. Brendan. Oh right, is he doing heroin? Yeah, he's he's one of the the. He's in the house. He's one of the, the best. Party. It's it's said that he's one of the best customers of the pin. <laughs> he doesn't act like someone who's on here. No, nobody. He's the, mo- he's the most ridiculous character in this movie, by the way. I thought he was a joke. I, I think that this must have been, I think this was uh, cathartic for Ryan Johnson, who... Oh, who might have been bullied by jocks. Yeah, it's... Oh, there's always going to be something like that pop- popping up. Well, this, I mean, but I mean... Okay. But we get the, we get... Yeah, but I'm just saying that this helped me disconnect because, and this also goes back to Twin Peaks because, well, that was cocaine that was being uh, in Twin Peaks, right? Oh, I don't even remember. That. It was, it was. Okay, they, they were, um, yeah, uh, what, Laura they were Palm- trafficking. Yeah, Laura Palmer and her boyfriend. Were, yeah, were ex-boyfriend. I'm not sure. It's been a while since I've seen Twin Peaks, but the drug element was cocaine. But just the fact that the drug. The drug of choice being heroin in a high school. I've read articles about uh, it was a terrible. It's a terrible story about a, a high school in Texas where um, uh, black tar heroin, I believe, was um, became the drug of choice of a, a handful of kids, and they all ended up overdosing. Surprise! Um, but it's it's noted that. It, it, it's interesting to me that the brick in the title refers to a brick of heroin. We see underage drinking in one scene. Other than that, we see a couple people smoking cigarettes, a couple people smoking joints. But we, we this Pretty is not a, it. it's not a druggy movie. Not really, not really. Incidentally, when Brendan is about to smash Tug's car in that parking lot scene that we mentioned earlier. Right. Um, is he trying to do it with a brick? I'm just curious. It's a big concrete block. That's what I thought. So yeah, it's not it was really a, a brick. Big, no, it was okay. bigger than a brick. Okay. Um, so it's not like they're using brick no. as different, you know, the different, you know, like a real brick in right. one scene. Just to um, kind of like play on the title. But then again, we do see someone smoking a joint, so it's very likely that the pin deals in pretty much every drug that he could probably get his hands on but i mean more you know just just off the top of my head just real quick like more realistically than straight up heroin in high school we would be dealing with like oxy sure yeah that would that would be more realistic i would yeah, yeah. or you Generally, know psychedelic speaking mushrooms well but or, i mean oxy yeah. oxy has heroin in it right they right. call it hillbilly heroin yeah so, you yeah. know and that's what my cousin I shouldn't talk about this. Yeah, Go let's on. not. Well, let's not. <laughs> yeah, we won't yeah, mention. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, we don't need to get into. Uh, but but then again, we got to remember we're not dealing with real life here. We're we're dealing with a very exact. It's supposed to be very exaggerated. Just like we feel everything in hindsight in high school, it seemed like everything was so ex- like I. It was just and like, all be all. Yeah, it's all or nothing. Yeah, and so I think that this movie very much you it's like you felt in high school like everything is like heightened stakes it's supposed to be like um 
there's the exclusive rich kids party that Brendan yeah. gets an invite. He and steals that, an invitation to that house is. It's obscenely huge. It's it was it's filmed in an actual mansion. Right. Is, was it because it yeah. looks like it's like the public library? It's that oh, big. It's, it's huge. It was yeah. an actual mansion they filmed in. Okay. So again, going back to the exaggerated, like if you weren't invited to a party. Let's say that was my whole high school okay. experience. I always had to hear Monday. I always had to hear about the party I wasn't invited to. So maybe if you're sitting, <laughs> I, I I can remember once I I I got grounded in high school. I did something bad. We we don't need to get into it. <laughs> but I missed out on a party, Aww. and so I was stuck at home. And so, like in my mind, it it was the greatest party ever, right? <laughs> and. It wasn't, <laughs> you know. But you it's know almost what I was like... doing instead of instead of going to parties that I wasn't invited to. I was watching film noir movies. No, there you <laughs> go. Yeah. <laughs> so it's supposed to be that like once you get invited to the cool kids party, you're oh in. Oh my god, it's a mansion. She's playing the piano and she's singing. And, and then you know, yeah, and there's. Go. They're not drinking cheap beer. They're, they're like they're, they're... champagne glasses. It's so like so like it, again. This is a, I only got this to the second and third viewing that this is supposed to be so exaggerated. Yeah. such a heightened sense of yeah. reality yeah. Yeah. of yeah. everything. Like oh my god, like. But it's downplayed, at the same time. Right, it's downplayed. There's nothing really uh, over the top about the way that it's all delivered no. or executed. So it it's it's they played it it's played so well and mm-hmm. I could see if somebody else had this idea it would probably get either too silly or they would incorporate too many like the the scenes with the jock it happens and then it's over and it's kind of like brushed to the side. Mhm. It almost becomes not a high school movie briefly when he starts really getting involved with the pin and tug. Right. Then it then it does. Then you do start seeing things outside of that high school world. Yeah. Now I want to. I think this is a good point to bring up um, another movie that I did think of that is similar in its concept here, and that is Cruel Intentions. Which sure. is based on Dangerous Liaisons, mm. which is based on Les Liaisons de Dan Dangereux. Um, but uh, we all know Dangerous Liaisons, of course. Um, and so Cruel Intentions is basically the high school uh, version of, of Dangerous Liaisons. Yes. And so that is another movie where it does work. And once, once again, we're dealing with rich kids a lot in yes. that movie. Yep. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe if you watch <laughs> Cruel Intentions... And then Brick. That would be a good double feature. It would. It would, be, it would be. And you should do Cruel Intentions first because then you, I think you would understand Brick better. And then tap. S- then, slide into it better. And then tack on Less Than Zero to really fucking. End ah, your well, I, don't, I don't know Less Than Zero. We're oh, going to cover less, that at less some than, point. Less Than Zero is a very somber. And I say add it on to the end because it deals with um, a recently graduated high school student, his first year of college. Um, comes back for for Christmas break and finds out one of his friends has become a heroin addict. So, oh, like it really. Oh um, yeah, well. So that would be, be like an interesting extension. end. Yeah, sure. So that's what I'm going. It, it's not a high school movie, but we're dealing with people fresh out of high school. Yeah. So 
Yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie. More so than I even, I think I realized. Which is the sign of a good movie. It is. If it you is. Could... I mean, this is, I find, but I still look at this movie as an experiment. I think that's the bottom line for me personally. Sure. And so I find, I'm interested in it and I'm kind of fascinated, a little fascinated right. with it as an experimental piece. Because I, I mean, I'm, I love anything that tries to kind of, you know, shake things up a little bit. So I think, Regardless of whether or not you actually like this movie, you, at the very least, I think that you have to respect it. Yeah. You might not like the story, it might be the narrative, some of the characters might rub you the wrong way, but, like, to have such a focused vision, and to have such good dialogue, and to have such an interesting, interwoven story with different layers going on, you gotta respect that. Mm -hmm. Um... And I want to talk a little bit about this director's self-restraint when it comes to storytelling. The original cut of this movie was over two hours long. He cut it down to 117 minutes when he submitted it to Sundance. It went to Sundance. It was purchased by Focus Features. He won a prize for originality of vision. Then he goes and cuts an additional seven minutes when he was allotted reshoots. Instead of adding to his movie, he took from the movie, reshot the ending, which we compared the endings. It's pretty much the same scene, but it's directed differently. The acting is better. And... It's the original. It was originally one take, and the 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 camera kind of circles the two characters. the the resh, the reshoot we have we have cuts and edits, and it works better with the close ups. It does. It does. It and absolutely they, does. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not. Um, they're not communicating to each other from several feet away. No, they're right next to each other. And I think it works so much better. And I'm I'm thinking that I I. I'm a sucker for a good long shot. De Palma was great at crafting these long shots, but he keeps them so visually interesting. The camera's moving, or the characters are moving, and I think that this one shot didn't work because we have two characters face-to-face talking, and it's it just doesn't... It's not visually... It doesn't... It doesn't lend itself visually to a one-shot kind of scene. It's, dare I, I mean, it's ex- expository? Absolutely, it? yes, it's, it is. It's a final expository scene, yes. I guess. Uh, and there's the fact that they're close together and that there's, it's in close-ups and that they're not trying to be heard from several feet away uh, brings it all real close. And I think that's what you need for all that information to be revealed at the end of the movie. Um, and again, the, a- the, the her acting was better, so much better. Yeah, I mean, now she's she's you she's, know right up in his face, and she doesn't. She basically has to just react to him, instead of you know standing far away. Yeah, yeah. there's um, it, so he's so he you got to respect the man. He knows his vision. He knows when it's too much, and he cuts back from it. I think I was telling you. I think 
I, I don't know. I haven't directed a movie. I would love to at some point. But I, I think a first-time director very often tries to throw too much at the screen. And I think would try to make his movie as long as he thought was needed. And to see this restraint exercised. And he talks about some of the scenes pulling he back, cut. Pulling back, right. pulling back. It, it makes me think of that. I mean, this is a very wild comparison. But it makes me think of Bob Fosse. His first movie was uh, his ad- adaptation of Sweet Charity, which was a hit Broadway musical that he also directed. And he went over the top. He had a huge budget. It's a very long movie. It did not succeed. His second attempt was Cabaret, which turned out to be a masterpiece and highly, highly, highly regarded. And for that, he brought everything in. It's also a musical, but everything's convi- confined to this rinky-dink little stage uh, in this nightclub in Berlin. So, um, yeah, so bringing it back to what you're saying, here we have a director who actually did that with his first movie. He does not get self-indulgent, really, at all. Like, it's all kept very much in check. And we see the deleted scenes we saw. He, he actually, he doesn't say self-indulgent, but there's a, there was a, a, a dream sequence that he cut from the movie. Yeah, but I like, see, I like that dream sequence, and I liked the sex scene. There's some stuff I wish he had left in. Yeah. But, but, uh, but I see, but yeah, everything he does is, was kind of just to bring it back to basics, isn't it? When he, yes. When he was cutting. And he said, like, there were, there were certain lines, he's like, I, I like these lines, I like this dialogue, but he's just like, it wasn't needed. Yeah. He tr- you trim know, it, trim it, trim it, and uh, that's something that I, you, you, after doing this show and listening to to directors talk with their interactions with producers, you hear them say, "Well, the producers maybe cut this, and the producers maybe cut that." And this, we have a director here saying that the producer said you could do X, Y, and Z, and he said, "Well, thank you, but I only need X and Z. I don't need Y." Yeah. So and, he knew, I mean, from the beginning. So, the, and, and I alluded to this at the beginning of our podcast. I, I think that the prize that he won at Sundance, Originality of Vision, perfectly, like, yeah. encapsulates yeah. this movie. He, This is his vision. And we'll briefly talk about his other movies, but Knives Out was also very much his vision where he was given more money great cast now stylistically that's a whodunit right that's actually done genre appropriately yes okay with adults with a budget all of the all of the trimmings that come with something like that i mean is it set in an old house yep yeah i mean right okay so so there he actually gets to do a genre full out instead of you know conceptually making it uh affordable Yes, you know, uh, yeah, okay, go on. And you, and at some point, I, you may b- want to bring this up later. But you were going to bring up the the David Lynch comparison. I as was well. just about to yeah. do that right now. So, in our Dune episode, we we talked about how David Lynch made two very personal movies: Eraserhead and The Elephant Man. They were very personal. They're very they're relatively speaking to dune very small movies yeah we're not talking about an intergalactic yeah um epic space story. space opera mm-hmm. i think they refer to uh star wars it should as, be an dune should be an opera it should yeah but that being said 
I, I see similarities, and, and again, I probably should have watched the Star Wars movie that Ryan Johnson directed, but it, I can't help but see that the reception that, that the movie got is harks back to how the, the reception that David Lynch received for Dune at the time. We had Ryan Johnson, who, who only made three movies prior to being thrown into the second largest franchise at the time was it three movies it was brick the brothers bloom and looper he had done oh, that oh he did looper before the star wars looper, movie yeah looper got him the star wars gig right and you go from being the head the the head cook um to just being the 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 sous chef <laughs> to use a culinary al- allegory or analogy there. Uh, yeah. I, I the kitchen th- filled with cooks. Yes. Yeah. Um, because we got the almighty Disney who owns Star Wars. And so the, your don't answer- those Star Wars movies, don't they, they usually have about three or four different screenwriters? Oh, I can yeah, only imagine. On yeah. So, I don't know if that was the case with this particular Star Wars No. Movie. And again, since we're focusing on Brick, we didn't do too much looking yeah. at to the last... I think it's the last... But it, it would be interesting to hear what he says about working on that Star Wars movie because I will forever uh, remember David Lynch interview saying about Dune that it was a nightmare for three years working on that. We'll uh, we'll have to um we'll have to check that out. But I I think coming off of it, so it's interesting and again the the comparison can't I can't help but make. Coming off of Dune, David Lynch goes on and makes Blue Velvet, which I I think is his magnum magnum opus. Is my, I think that's of course. his masterpiece. It is, and I'm e- eager to see what Ryan Johnson does in, in the future. But I would say that Knives Out at this point is his magnum opus. Wow, is his masterpiece. I can't wait to see. I it. would say that Brick is just Brick. And this was a very interesting criticism that I saw, that I read somewhere. Brick is a very good proof of concept. Yeah. To show that this this guy had $450,000, 20 days to shoot, decides, decides to shoot on a film when he could have saved money by doing it digitally. And whether or not you like the movie, you have to say, this is... This director is competent. This this man wrote, directed, and edited this movie. I can entrust him. Yeah. A production company would say, okay, yeah. this is somebody we want to work with in the future. Yes. Proof of concept. Yes. And that grew with the Brothers Bloom, which didn't really hit with audiences. Looper was a huge success, critic, critically and commercially. And then he got the gig to direct a freaking Star Wars movie. That's crazy. How many... You can count on one... Maybe one hand. I'm not sure. There's too many Star Wars movies. Maybe one hand and a thumb. The the number of people that directed a Star Wars movie. So for him to be thrown into that mix... That's that's huge. And I I would imagine... It must have been a childhood dream. I mean, what director growing up in that time period didn't say, I would love... Well... Other than David Lynch, who said, no, I would not want to direct a Star Wars movie. <laughs> How many directors? Yeah, but like well, I, we're not so we're not completely sure Ryan Johnson wanted to, you know, right. necessarily. I, 
I want to say that I read some of that was a dream of, okay. of his. Okay. Um, and he strikes me as the kind of guy that he probably didn't know what he was getting into. I think he might have been a little naive. Well, I mean, it sounds like he derailed the whole the whole saga. To the yeah, <laughs> that's what people say. Um, it's very divisive. If you if you want to uh, go down a rabbit hole of this Star Wars movie, just Google Ryan Johnson Star Wars on YouTube, and you'll get. Every, you'll get all sorts of different video essays of saying how he ruined Star Wars. He ruined Luke Skywalker. He Aww. he ruined my childhood Aww. to the point where J.J. Abrams that I was probably paid a shitload of money to come back and uh-huh. they, uh, they they steer the, the course. One. I'm trying to th- think. I've seen a very humorous review about Star Wars and um, the, the later trilogy and how. We have one group of fans saying this, so they'll they'll course correct for that, and then you have another group. Well, but we want this. To, okay, it's trying to appease everyone instead of just being its own thing, okay. like the well, original trilogy was. Well, but I mean, I don't know if you could. The, that that's what happens with a franchise, right? You know, as we know, it, that happens to any franchise. Yeah. Um, when you don't have, and I would say. I, I'm trying to think of a franchise where it's been like the one director or one screenwriter that has helmed an entire franchise. Hmm. Indiana Jones was all Steven Spielberg. Was it? Yeah. He did all four. Unfortunately, well, the fourth. There's, there you yeah. have it. There's your answer. So, right. But, yeah, to be thrown into the middle. So... The Star Wars is divided into three trilogies now. It's a nine-part series, so it's three trilogies. You had the first three in the late 70s, 80s. Then you had the late 90s, early 2000s prequel trilogy. Now you have the sequel to the original trilogy that wrapped up. And you have... I'm I'm interested... And what people are going to say about his Star Wars movie 20 years from now. Because you know Star Wars is a franchise that's just... As long as it keeps making money, uh, it's never going It's never going to die. Like Regardless, James, like James Bond, man. It's never going to die. My parents went to Dr. No for their first date. And like they're still making James Bond movies. So as long as it's making money, <laughs> as long as there's a profit, it's never going to die. I wonder if... This is like his. I wonder if his Star Wars movie is going to become like the cult Star Wars movie that like you have this right. small group of yeah. Star Wars fans that are like, "Fuck J.J. Abrams, <laughs> fuck George Lucas." <laughs> I wa- I love the last, like I love my Ryan Johnson Star Wars movie. I am secretly a little bit interested in seeing this Star Wars movie now, no, just from what no. you've shown me. And how it goes against the grain of everything yeah. else that's I have, Star Wars. I'll tell you, I have no interest in watching the two J.J. Abrams You're Star Wars movies. interested in the Ryan Johnson one? Yeah. I think I am too. I, I if, have... if, if I'm going to watch it. If yeah. I'm going to watch anything associated with that. Right. We've talked about this, and Empire Strikes Back is the only one that I could see myself re-watching. Love it. That's yeah. what, that'll, that yeah. has always been my favorite Star Wars movie, and I can't see that changing. 
And if I were to see another, I mean, I've seen some of the other ones, and I can't. St- I've seen the prequels. Ugh. I can't stand them. Can't stand them. And so, oh, sorry, that was a little too. <laughs> well, I, I sent you the. I sent you that clip, the I hate sand clip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Hayden Christensen. Ah. <laughs> uh, Hayden, I don't. That poor boy. I mean, I don't understand. That's anti-acting. <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna suck all the air out of out of a scene, out of a room, out of a theater, <laughs> just have Hayden Christensen speak your speak the lines. So it just go. You know, you you get lost in the void when you when you're listening to. <laughs> to so we have got black bl- hole of acting. All we right, have gone. I like the what? guy, but I don't like the actor. <laughs> no, I'm sure he's a great yeah. guy, but yeah. you know, if you're gonna have acting that wooden, why don't you just, well, just have a cardboard cutout of yeah. him and have somebody <laughs> voice his lines off stage? Be a lot cheaper. He said in an interview, like his little brother would like laugh and point at him, like "You're Darth Vader." <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. So. Let's uh And he is. He's supposed to be Darth Vader, right? He's young Darth I Vader. I don't know. Isn't he? I have no idea. I think he is. I uh, really have <laughs> it's, Yeah. It's, so Yes so he if, is. Okay, yes, you're yeah, right. Because I was is, gonna say, like, is. that's that's a big mistake to make if if I'm wrong. No 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 on no, no, this no. You're you're right, you're right. right. He is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh Anakin Skywalker. That's right. That's the hell right. kind of name is Anakin. I don't know. It's, for that I for, think for that matter, what the hell kind of last name is Skywalker? See, Sky- so, so his parents were hippies, and they were raised on a commune. Oh, God only knows. <laughs> and so they, they were going to call him... George call, Lucas, we need answers. Why is it Skywalker? They were going to call him Moonjumper, but then they decided on Skywalker instead. Or or Cloud cloud Skater. Cloud <laughs> Humper. Stop. <Yeah>. Starfucker. Stop! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Back to Brick. Well, it's about time that we actually start wrapping up, Brick. Okay. So, but we've we've covered a lot here. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we're assuming that you've seen this movie at least once. And this 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 movie, like I said, to me, it was it it. I I, I got. It's not so much that I liked it so much that I I watched, rewatched it twice in one night. It's just that after the pieces came together, like I said. I, I wanted to see the puzzle was in front of me, but I, I, I didn't mind breaking. It's almost like then deconstructing the puzzle yeah. and taking pieces away from it. Um, and I, to me, that's just a sign of a, of a, of a good movie that you can actually go back and um, have that sort of discussion about it. And just listening to some of the interviews, listening to the commentary, you get the sense that this is just a man that loves to to tell stories in his particular. He's he's an artist, and instead of painting or sculpting, he makes movies and he wants to tell stories. And it's clear to me that he's a gifted storyteller. But he, I I think similar to the way David Lynch wasn't a fit for Dune, I I would gather that he might not have been the perfect fit for Star Wars. Controversial. So. Okay. That's just my personal opinion. Um, 
and I, and I did and like I said on the Dune podcast, I I I came around on Dune a great great deal, um, rewatching it for the show. So um, yeah, Brick, Brick is a movie that I'm not sure how it ended up on my cinematic radar. It did. It was recommended to me by a friend. I think because. I had made a joke. I, I now I remember. I had made a joke about Joseph Gordon-Levitt not being a very good actor. What? Yeah. That well, well. Let me say my piece. At the time, my only frame of reference I was Third Rock from the Sun, which he was is great in that. In hindsight, yes, but it's a goofy sitcom. I was talking I don't more know about, about like robotic crap that he did. I mean, I, he was that, on point with that. Oh, I don't. I don't. Uh, my memories of Third Rock from the Sun are clearly not as good and vivid as you. I, well, I mean, I'm trying to remember. Like, I thought he—they're all aliens, right? Yes. I thought he had like this robotic uh, trait as an alien slash. They all have this very like human. naive, like we don't know exactly. We take things very literally right. instead of knowing the broader spectrum. I don't want to talk to turn this into a discussion about Third Rock from okay. the Sun, okay. but well, I remember. Okay, so just real quick, I remember living in New York, uh, and there was there was a play called Uncle Bob. I think that's the. I think I'm getting that name right. That was off Broadway, and I was freelancing with someone who was acting as an agent for me, even though he really wasn't in an agent. And he was talking about this play, and he was talking about auditions for it, and I was going to audition for it. And I think... I don't know if Joseph Gordon-Levitt was the replacement or the original actor in the play, but he did it. He did it off-Broadway. So he started doing some theater after Third Rock from the Sun. And then... We started seeing him in uh, independent movies, like Gregoraki movies, like uh, Mysterious Skin. Mysterious Skin. I want to say he's in another Gregoraki movie, but I may be wrong. We'll do Mysterious Skin, Skin eventually. But Absolutely. he started doing independent movies, one after another, after another. So my yes, and you you cut me off very sorry. viciously before I got to say. Oh, I'm so sorry. I had not, I had not seen Mysterious Skin or Brick when I had made these comments. Oh, gotcha. About him being a a good dramatic actor. Okay. I, I kind of had those third rock from the sun blinders. I think that, like I said, I think at the time that was my only frame of reference. Cause like you said, after third rock from the sun, he kind of, I don't think he acted the, uh, I don't think he acted in films or TV for a while. Like you said, I think Doing he went theater. I think he went to do theater yep. and that wasn't on my radar at the time. Yep. So for me, my only frame of reference was the long haired, it's a goofy character. It's a goofy sitcom. Mm-hmm. Then I saw Brick. I was like, okay, this is really good. And then I got... Uh, I he's had phenom- seen... He's phenomenal in Mysterious Skin. Myster- and I mean, that's a blowaway movie. I was going to say... We will cover it. Yeah. And well, that was... That, yeah. that was the uh, that, So, like, after seeing those two roles, I'm like, all right, this this kid... And I shouldn't say kid. This kid... He's he got a kid. He's got chops. Yeah. Yeah. This kid can yeah. fucking yeah. act, and and then I think it was Inception. Yep, he's that was re- the first like major mainstream blockbuster type right. movie, and then he showed up in the third 
Batman movie. He shows it. He's he? in The Dark okay. Knight Rises. Okay. And I gotta stop doing this with actors, and I and I've gotten better with age. But I used to say I I can't buy so and so like that. I did I did this with Heath Ledger when he was cast as the Joker. I was like, the guy from like Ten Things I Hate About You and that night movie he's gonna be the joker he done broke back mountain it's like he'd already proven himself I don't think as I'd an seen actor broke back mountain okay. at that point okay um i have now and yeah. like i said i gotta stop doing that because i'm i'm almost always <laughs> you get, wrong you get proven wrong i get proven i mean that wrong. performance that he gave in in as the joker was you know he earned was he, revelatory my god it's like the most if you're going you don't I see don't, him uh, you, you know, don't see him you underneath don't, all you of don't that. Um, it's just, it's brilliant. Um, so I got to stop doing that and I've gotten better with that. When I hear a casting decision, um, I, I I don't get bent out of shape and I don't get worried. Um, like I said, are you, are you too young to remember when Tom Cruise was cast in an interview with a vampire and Anne Rice was like, not Tom Cruise, not Tom Cruise. But then she wrote that letter, that open letter that she got published, uh, in a newspaper or magazine. Right. After she saw the first preview of or the first screening yeah, of it, and he's, saying she he, said she he was, was yeah, she retracted again. Everything. That was before my time, and again, uh, I heard the stories about when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman. Oh right, that happened. They right, like, Mister Mom is going to be Batman. Yeah, but he was so good. He was, and I think what did what did Tim Burton say is like he has the jawline, and he did, and <laughs> and, and so and so um. This is this is the only thing I'm gonna to say to touch on um, the new Batman because Batman There's is another a, one. Yeah, it's like here we go. It's yeah, just like a, that's another franchise. But I yeah. can't. Um, and for people that are hating on Robert Pattinson being cast as Batman, see, I don't even know who that is. Okay, he. Uh, that's most how people, out of touch I am with all of today's Hollywood. So, he's very well known for those Twilight movies. The um, the teenage romance, vampire, werewolf, high school, young adult kind of thing. I think I know. I think I know who you're talking about. I think. So. He's in all the, he's with her in all those pictures. Kristen Stewart, yeah. Yeah. That, that's him. That's him, okay. All I will say are, Watch The Lighthouse with him and Willem Dafoe. It's basically a two-man play set in a, in a lighthouse in black and white shot on film. And it is darkly humorous. And it's a brilliant, brilliant performance. And the Safdie Brothers movie, Good Time, which is just a brilliant thriller. And again, I that's why when he was announced as Batman, I'm not going to say anything until I see the movie. Because... I'm- um, I mean, don't don't vampires turn into bats? That's what Dracula did. No, th- these vampires are sparkly. <laughs> they do. They sparkle. I know. I know they do. They sparkle Stop. in the sunshine. What, what the fuck, man? So, but <laughs> I, you got to say, give. You're a young actor. You get the the you get a a a, a big Hollywood role in Twilight, and then you're looped into this franchise because your your contract. I think like everyone involved in those movies is like if I wasn't contractually obligated I think that even Kristen Stewart like is frustrated with those movies yeah. I can I yeah I haven't seen them any of them probably never will unless I'm 
Um, I, I saw one. I, okay. I, I, can't, I can't tell you which one I saw. I think they're interchangeable. I feel that way about all those Hobbit movies and the Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter movies. I can already hear you typing angry responses out there listening, but these are just my my personal opinions. And again, we've gone we've gone way off topic because that has this <laughs> nothing to do with brick. Sorry. Um. So if you're still with us, thank you so much for joining us again on the Cult Film Companion podcast. Hit us up on Twitter hashtag Cult Film Comp. Email us at the Cult Film Companion at gmail dot com. Join the Facebook group. Andrew, any final thoughts about brick? Yeah, I'm going to start mentioning, uh, I, I want, you know, I have to throw in my, my conspiracy stuff once in a while. I'm going sure. to start, I'm going to start mentioning when movies have smashing mirrors, because I'm beginning to think that it's in every single movie. We'll start a count. Okay. As of this good. movie. Sounds good. Well, this a, will be the first one. There is an extremely noticeable moment in Brick with a yes. smashing mirror. Yes. Yeah. And our actress, actress is in kabuki makeup in front of the smashed mirror. Now, it's also, we should note that he throws a clock yeah, into a mirror. That's right. Now that's, so something's up with that. And there's a lot to do with clocks and time. There's a lot of numbers, those... digital numbers on cl- digital clocks. On, the, but he doesn't throw a digital clock. It's a face clock. It is. Yeah, that he throws into the mirror. Now, something's up with that shot, though, when the mirror smashes. It's almost, it almost looks like a green screen, even though it's, it's probably not. not. No, it's okay. not. Okay. Okay. So just for the, for the listener, if you want to get into it, just look up uh, MK Ultra Mind Shattering and, you know, see if you can find some sort of connection to smashing mirrors. And the symbolism behind that. There's a whole rabbit hole with that. Go ahead. So, yeah, we'll start the smashing mirror uh, count as of this episode. Uh, I'm sure we're missing a couple, um, but I know that it's happened in other movies that we've watched. It has. Yeah. Uh, um, and maybe it's a blessing in disguise that we're gonna go back and cover Blood Simple, which I know is a smashing mirror. Oh, is there? And I don't think there's broken mirrors in After Hours, but there's some very interesting shots with mirrors. Yeah, and and it, it, and, and it doesn't always have to be a mirror. It can be it can be smashing glass, right? Just stuff getting shattered, and it's a it's a it's a metaphor. There's got to be something there too that the the item that he picks up and throws into the mirror in brick. Now yeah. that we've gotten back clock? to brick, is a, a clock. clock. Yeah, a face clock. Uh, because I don't know if you kid, kids out there remember, before everyone used their cell phone for an alarm clock, we all had those digital... Yeah. We, everyone yeah. and their mother, yeah. everyone had those little digital clocks. I'm going to be getting one of those because I don't like... Ha- even on airplane mode, I don't ha- like having my device on uh, You know, while I sleep you right. know, as an alarm clock. Yeah. So, there's something there. Yeah. Um, But... Thank you again for joining us on this journey through Brick. More to talk about than than I think we initially anticipated, but um, that seems to be the case with the, us. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this movie is this movie is one that um, like it or hate it, you you got to respect it. And again, I I can't think of a better prize for this movie to to be given than originality of vision because this movie is a very strict vision and it's adhered to perfectly by the acting the script is tight the music is beautiful the cinematography we didn't talk too much about but it's shot on film and i like movies that are shot on film 
Yes, so There's... do I, and I, I, I'm a little concerned that I didn't recognize that it was being shot on film. I thought it was on digital. Uh, I think because it was probably converted to digital. Maybe, okay. To be edi- for editing-wise. Okay. I Maybe. think that might have been part of it. Gotcha. So, you know. Okay. Still, though, it was shot very well. Yes. And it made good use of the Southern California setting. It's, it's, yeah. They went out of their way, because it was actually mentioned on the commentary that the the town that they shot at was too beautiful for the for this material. Ah. So they went out of their way to make things a little dark and grimy. Yep. And it shows. Yep. It shows now that, you know. Yep. Um yeah, they they said that the town was too nice looking for this kind of dark material that they were looking for. So talk about knowing what you want and how to achieve it with a small budget. My god. $450,000. I mean, when you put it like that, this is this is a coup. Yeah, you know, he really pulled something off here. And uh, yeah, there's got there's, like I said, proof of concept that this man, given that that, and to have a like a movie that you know was was very well received by critics and, and what was the award for again? Originality of vision. There you go. Beautiful. Brought in three point nine million at the box office. Can't argue with that. No. You've got a career now. Yes. Yep. You've established yourself. Yep. And just to why is this a cult movie? Similar to other movies on this list, I think it's something that gets discovered as a first time movie from a director that's gone on to make pop more popular movies. So some of these people kind of say, ooh, I really like Looper. I loved Knives Out. I want to see more from this director. And they kind of go back and say, oh, what's this movie? Oh, I know Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, this is the guy that wrote Knives Out. I want to check this out. Oh, I liked Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Looper. So, oh, he made another movie with this director. I'm going to check it out. Which is kind of like, so this movie kind of gets rediscovered by people as the years progress. Do you think the following is mostly Ryan Johnson complete completionists? Or do you think it has its own following? And I would wonder what that group would be that would be, uh, you know, that would be, uh, that would revere this movie. I think, I think we're, we're talking with a lot of Ryan Johnson completionists. And I think we're also talking with people that, that like neo-noir movies. I okay. think that it, really, yeah. Okay. I, I think I don't think there's there's that many being you know, people that want something different from the the usual big big blockbuster Hollywood movies. This is the kind of like little independent movie that you get recommended to. Uh, I think video stores were still a thing at the time in two thousand five. Yeah, they were still. So this might be the kind of movie that you might get you might get recommended to by a, a friend or the guy at the video store that knows yeah. way too much about movies. Staff picks at yeah. Blockbuster. Right, exactly. <laughs> so uh, definitely a, a cult movie. And like I said, I think it keeps, because he's he's gaining in popularity and recognition, he's he's someone that people, especially rebounding from the 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 awful things that were said about him in the the Star Wars movie to rebound with something like Knives Out, which even is a movie that came to your attention and you don't follow too much on 
on current movies, correct? That's right. But I remember Knives Out being released. I was in Los Angeles, and I had a friend who had uh, tickets for a screening, for a preview screening, I think like a press screening, and I turned it down, unfortunately, and I, I do regret that. I wish I had seen the movie, because I still haven't seen it. So, right. So th- this is... This is the kind of movie that gets discovered and rediscovered by people through word of mouth, through wanting to see more from this particular um, director. Especially if you like the storytelling of Knives Out, this is a less polished. I would say that Knives Out is a diamond Brick is a diamond in the rough, ah. and you kind of have to. There's there's a there's rough there's some roughness to brick that was polished out through experience, maybe budget, given a bigger budget, getting to expand, but they're both you know, they're both movies to check out. So if you've listened to this and you haven't seen Knives Out, check out Knives Out, um, rewatch brick and you might get some more insight into it it's it's a movie that might not hit you the first time around um it didn't hit for me the first time around but um something something about it it left enough of an impression on me that i i was willing to revisit it and i'm glad that i did so andrew signing off signing off good night people